I'm more like the pylon they skate around now at this point than, uh, than a hockey player. Let me invite you to take your Bibles, please, and go to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. And while you're turning there, let me just express again my appreciation uh, for the opportunity to be here and to speak. I'm grateful for it, and uh, thank you as well uh, for your attention and uh, the encouragement you've been. Uh, God has been very kind to allow me to speak on uh, college, university campuses, seminaries through the years just because really the position I have uh, in education. So I've had the privilege to do that. And I always love the opportunity because the reality of it is uh, if the Lord uh, doesn't return, you are the future. Right? I, uh, I looked at some numbers about uh, coming up now to five years ago. Uh, the millennials replaced the baby boomers as the largest generation uh, in our nation. And that's because uh, the older end of the baby boomers are, are going on, right? There were 75 million of them born, uh, 65 million millennials. But I'm at the younger end of the baby boom. It's 1946 to 1964. I was born in 61, so, so I'm just a baby baby boomer. Uh, but the older of them obviously would be upper 70s. And I'm at the younger end, and, and I know you're looking at me and going, no, you're not on the younger end of anything, right? <laughs> the reality of it is I was sitting up here thinking, when I was a senior in college, Dr. Bob III was 20 years younger than I am right now, which is scary, right? So we're all getting older, which means it won't be long, so we're off the scene, and the Lord's work is going to be in your hands. All right, so I always count it an incredible privilege to be able to challenge and encourage and, and open up the Word of God to you, because literally the future of the work of Jesus Christ is in your hands. In His providence, He's entrusted the work that we've talked about this week to you. And you're on the cusp of stepping up to that. And, and the work of God uh, will be advanced, uh, humanly speaking, to the, to the degree you take that baton. And you determine, by God's grace, to run that race. And to run it faithfully for the Lord. And that's really at the heart of what the emphasis of this week has been that there is a task that Jesus gave us to do, which is all of our task, and it's not done yet, right? And I, I don't think this, this particular group I'm going to ask to do this will, uh, I mean, if you're embarrassed, I, I'm sorry, I'm going to apologize right now. But if you're here this evening and you are committed with the intention of going overseas for the gospel as a foreign missionary. I'd like to ask you if you just stand to your feet for a moment, all right? So if you're, if that's, you're committed to that, that's your intention. That's what you're planning to do by God's grace. I'd like to just ask you to stand for a moment. And, and here's a part of the reason why I'm doing this. Let me say, first of all, I thank God for you. And I trust that God will direct your steps to a fruitful life of service taking the gospel to the nations. So, so here's what I want to say, though. What about the rest of us? Right? God's, God never called me to go overseas. So what's my job? Right? I fully expected that most of the people in this room would not stand up when I asked that question because that's normal. Right? I'm simply wanting us to see that everyone in this room is under the obligation of the Great Commission, but not all of us are going to go. So what is the role for those of us who aren't going? What does God want us to do to fulfill our part of the mission that Jesus has entrusted to us? Thank you very much. You may be seated. Thank you for letting me use you as a prop. I apologize. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5. 
because the church at Philippi is an excellent model for us of what it means to be partners for the gospel. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5. Paul is expressing his thanksgiving to God for them, and he says, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Some of you may have a translation that says, for your partnership in the gospel or your participation in the gospel. I don't, uh, I don't usually uh, use Greek words in the pulpit, but this one's one that people know more, the word koinonia. It's a word that means fellowship, but it also can mean participation in. It can mean partnership or communi communion in something. What Paul is saying here about the Philippians is that it was a great cause of joy to him that they had become partners with him in the gospel, that they actually had joined up with him in the gospel work. So this was a local church at Philippi that Paul could look out and say, I give thanks to God for you whenever you come to mind because of your partnership with me in the gospel. And I want to just take a few moments and look at that principle in this verse, sort of just unpack this verse and then show you how in the book that, that partnership worked out because it's a great model for us so that the rest of us who are not goers but are senders, how should we fulfill the mission that Jesus has entrusted to all of us? All right, so look again at verse 5 because we just unpacked the principle. Let's talk first of all just about the character of it. It's that word fellowship means participation, partnership, to have a share in the gospel. And we know that's not just that they shared belief because look at verse 7. Even as it is meet, for, meet or fitting for me to think this of you all because I have you in my heart inasmuch as both in my bonds or my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers with me of grace. So it's not just he's saying, I'm glad you're believers. He's saying you actually have been a partner in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. They had stepped up alongside of Paul in gospel ministry, and the church at Philippi was therefore special to Paul because of that, that they had stood with Paul and engaged in that task. Look at the words in verse 5, in the gospel, because that supplies the context for this partnership, that it was, uh, if I could put it this way, it was only because of the gospel that they had this partnership. The gospel had come to Philippi. We, we actually, have, I think in a couple of messages, uh, it's been referenced or mentioned. Remember, Paul was there. God opened Lydia's heart. Paul preached the gospel to the Philippian jailer and his household. They all heard the word. They trusted in Christ together. The church at Philippi was formed through the preaching of the gospel. And so that became the context within which they had partnership. It was only by the gospel itself that you can have a great commission partnership. And in fact, it's not only by the gospel, it is actually only within the gospel that you can have that partnership. Right? And, and we, can't, we can't lose sight of that because we live in a day where people uh, can, can uh, present, and I'm going to put it in air quotes, missions that effectively compromise the gospel. And Paul would never say that we should be partners in that. Right? In fact, he writes very clearly in 2 Corinthians 6 about there's no fellowship between light and darkness, that, that in fact you can't be partners with those who are, who are perpetuating a false gospel or a false understanding. No matter how much good on a human level is being done, if you are betraying the souls of people, you can't have a partnership in that. So what Paul rejoices in is that the Philippians understood the gospel, and even though being threatened by false teaching, if you look at chapter 3, there are people who are trying to subvert the gospel. They have resisted that, and he warns them to keep resisting that. Right? So, 
So as people who've been entrusted with the gospel, our, our partnerships have to be inside the circle of the gospel. Right? The content of the gospel must be explicit. Our clarity about the gospel can't be compromised. The purity of the gospel it has to be held in high regard. We, can't, we can never lose that, or we are effectively building up with one hand something we're tearing down with the other. Right? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the foundation because it's what created the partnership and it becomes the boundary lines for the partnership. But it's also always for the gospel. The spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central thing that Jesus has given us to do. Right? And, and, and there's lots of good things that can be done, but none of them can ever threaten the centrality of the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We said earlier, Dr. Bob said, uh, talking about the fact that, that, that souls will live somewhere forever. And we live in a day that's actually sort of lost the biblical priority that Jesus established for us. Right? He said, do not fear him who can destroy your body. Fear him who can destroy your body and soul in hell. And we live in a day that actually elevates those two as almost to their equal concerns. But the fact is, people are going to live somewhere forever. And the most important display of love we can ever show is to give them the gospel of Jesus Christ, which promises them freedom from sin and condemnation and life eternal with Jesus Christ. It never it never should be in competition between us doing good and proclaiming the gospel. Never a competition there. The gospel must always be at the center. The name of Christ is the only way of salvation. And no one, the scriptures say, will ever come to Jesus by just looking at your life. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. We must speak the gospel. We must proclaim the gospel. We must tell people that the God who made us loves us and sent his son into the world so that we could have life through him. That there is an answer for the brokenness of this world and it's found in Jesus. That's what the partnership is, is wrapped up in. It's inside the gospel. It's, it's created by the gospel and it's for the advancement of the gospel. The partnership is to take the name of Jesus to every place and among every people until the end of the age. Notice the last part of the verse because he talks about their consistency in this partnership, their commitment to it. He says there, from the first day until now. Paul's writing from a Roman prison. Actually, you know, when you're a speaker in a conference, your heart can panic. When Brent Belford said, turn to Philippians chapter 1, I went, oh no. I thought I was going to have to write a new message this afternoon or something. So thankfully he stayed away from my text. But you know, you know that he's in the Roman prison. So that's down toward the end of his life. Philippi was on the front end of when he came into Europe, Macedonia, Nicaea. So the gap between that first day until now is a long, long gap. And this church had been committed to this partnership with Paul from the first day until now. When they received the gospel, they understood that they became responsible for the gospel. That, that it wasn't just something that came to them and terminated with them. But that actually when the gospel came to them, they not only received it, but they were entrusted with a responsibility to advance the gospel, to spread it to other people. And so right away, Paul says the first day, all the way up to his Roman imprisonment, they had participated in the advance of the gospel. They were committed to it, which just honestly, it makes sense right? Doesn't it? You know the Great Commission? Go make disciples, 
baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then what? Teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Right? Make sure you understand what he said. He doesn't say, teach them everything I commanded. He says, teach them to do everything that I commanded. And what is the last thing he commanded? Go make disciples. Right? So wrapped up in becoming a disciple of Jesus is a commitment to obey Christ's command to make disciples of all the nations. I mean, it's, it's not a secondary decision. It's not something like, hey, maybe if you get serious for Jesus, you could think about doing it. It is actually part of the very essence of being a follower of Jesus. Because he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came on a mission to bring good news of his salvation. And then he calls us out of darkness into light. We receive that good news. And then he entrusts us with the responsibility to keep spreading it out. And the Philippians got that. Right? The Philippians understood that. They realized that to be a disciple of Jesus is actually to obey the Great Commission. To receive the gospel is to become responsible for it. And I would suggest to you that the reason Paul planted churches was for this very reason. I don't know if you were here yesterday afternoon. Remember I Paul, Paul said he fulfilled the preaching of the gospel. He had laid the foundation. He had no more room for work. You know why? Because the work had been passed to them. He had laid the foundation, and now they were supposed to build on that foundation. And you know what one of those churches was? The church at Philippi. So what we have to really, I think, uh, come to grips with, particularly in our culture and generations into this whole process, is to realize that the church of Jesus Christ, the assembly of God's people, does not exist to be a, a supplier of spiritual goods and services. It's not a spiritual convenience store. We have the church and we go there and we get the things that we need. I want to go to church so I can get a blessing. I want to go to church so my kids can have kids programs and we can, I can meet my friends and I can have all that stuff. That our paradigm of the church is really much more like a dispenser of spiritual goods and services when the New Testament would say it's more like a forward operating base. The gospel came to Philippi and a base was established from which then the gospel would keep spreading out into the region around it. They were actually marching forward into the spiritual battle that, that they had been sent by Christ and every church that was planted became a forward ap operating base. That is, the gospel had left Jerusalem and started spreading its way around the ancient world. It had come all the way up to Illyricum. And Paul's saying, listen, now out of you, we need to launch into new territory. Right? You're going to be our base of operations until we have set up another one farther down the way. And that's the way Paul taught it. And that's what the Philippians understood. We've received the gospel. We are now the Philippian forward operating base for the gospel to go out into all Macedonia and Achaia. And so when Paul leaves Philippi, after he's been beaten and shamefully entreated, 1 Thessalonians 2 says, he goes to Thessalonica. And immediately the Philippian church is helping Paul reach the Thessalonians. He imme they immediately embrace the mission of Jesus Christ and become senders, not just receivers. They become people who participate in the work to advance it. 
and not just send it out, but Paul will talk to them about actually finishing the job where they are. They still had to strive together for the faith of the gospel, chapter 1 says, while helping Paul take the gospel to some other place. So the principle, basically, I, I just, uh, I, I really just almost feel like just saying it and saying it and saying it, is because if I could convince you tonight that if you've received the gospel, you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your savior, you have become responsible for the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. It's, praise God for every one that stood up several minutes ago. But the fallacy in our day is to think it's their job. It's not their job. It's the church's job. And they're going on behalf of the church and you're the church. It's our job. It's our job to do this. We need to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. So what does this pattern look like? What does it look like to be a partner with the gospel? I'm going to try and unpack it. We're just going to, we're going to do a little bit of a survey, so stick with me. All right? I know it's, it's late in the game, and I don't know where Brent Balford played baseball, but when I grew up, the ninth hitter was the worst hitter, not the best hitter. So I'm feeling a little bad about that after he made that illustration, too, because I'm after him. So that means I'm at the back of the batting order here tonight. Look at chapter 1, verse 19. Here's the first aspect of the partnership, and that is prayer. Verse 19 says, For I know that this shall turn, out, uh, turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul's in prison. He's saying, I, I believe that God is going to vindicate me and deliver me. And he says, through your prayer. All right, so he, he had... And, and we've had a couple of messages and mentions of this, so I'm hoping, hopefully can just sort of summarize and build on it. But Paul had a view of prayer that was actually partnership. Right? So here's why sometimes we do this, right? And we tend to talk like this. We'll go, church will be going, hey, on Saturday we have this big event going on. We've got a lot going. Can you come out and help us? And if you can't help us, would you pray? As if praying is not helping. Right? And, and it's a subtle way in which we've almost embraced the idea, if you're really going to do something, you do something. If you can't do something, then you pray. As if praying is not doing something. But Paul here is saying, I'm in a Roman prison and I expect to be delivered from it through your prayer. The effective means that God would use to deliver Paul from a prison was the prayers of his people. Now, why might Paul think that? Do you remember that little story in Acts? Acts chapter 12, James gets taken prisoner and, and Herod has him beheaded. And Herod sees that the religious leaders like that, so he goes and snags up Peter, has the same plan for Peter, and what does the book of Acts record? They all got together and they were praying. And Peter gets released from prison in answer to prayer. And Paul's in prison, and he's saying, I'll be delivered through your prayer. In fact, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 13 is in prison, and he says, would you pray all the more so that I might be released sooner? He saw a direct correlation between the prayers of God's people and the answer being the deliverance that he needed. They didn't think prayer was a meaningless practice. 
It wasn't just something to get us centered or to make us feel better or somehow get us to get stuff off our chest so we have a sort of a, a verbal therapy session with God, but it really doesn't do anything. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 1.11, he says, and you joining in helping me through prayer. He believed prayer was effective. And it wasn't just because of the, the situation with Peter. In, in Romans chapter 15, Paul writes to the church at Rome and says, I've got three prayer requests for you. That my service to the saints in Jerusalem will be acceptable, that I will be protected from uh, those who are opposed to the faith, and then I'll come to you in joy. And the book of Acts shows us the answer. That he shows up at Rome and it says, and they received him gladly. Prayer request one. They say, you need to go to the temple and, and fulfill this vow. He gets down there and a riot breaks out. And when that riot breaks out, they're starting to try and pull Paul apart. And a Roman guard looks down and sees it and swoops down to protect Paul. Pulls Paul out of that. Paul, Paul's there. Then he goes down to the Sanhedrin. It turns into chaos because God's protecting him. He comes back to the guardhouse and a group of men make a vow not to eat anything until Paul is dead. And you know who just so happens to hear it? Paul's nephew. And Paul's nephew goes to Paul and says, hey, these guys have made a plan to kill you. Paul says, go tell the Roman guard. And he goes and tells the Roman guard and the Roman guard puts together an entire entourage to protect Paul and sneaks him out in the night to take him up to Caesarea. Now here's what I'm saying to you. The very thing that Paul asked the Romans to pray for, God did. And God did it changing the heart of pagans to protect him. God hears and answers prayer. So when we get together in our churches and we open up that missionary prayer letter and it says pray for so-and-so that he will come to know Christ or pray for this need that we have for resources or pray for this situation where we're being threatened because of our stand for Christ, it really, truly means something if we earnestly pray for it. Because the God who is both far and near can hear and move on behalf of his people and show himself strong. I mean, it is a real partnership. And, and we have to ask ourselves at times, sometimes, right? I mean, I, uh, I've interacted with a lot of missionaries and sometimes they are deeply discouraged because they put together a prayer letter, they send it out now into cyberspace and they hear nothing. They hear nothing. No note saying, I'll be praying for you with that. I'm praying about that. Or they show up at our churches. They walk in the door and nobody knows who they are. They don't even recognize the name. They certainly haven't been praying for them. Right? Are we going to, we, all of us, every one of us who remained in our seat, are you going to accept the partnership that comes with prayer? Real, earnest, what Paul calls in Romans 15, striving together with me in prayer. Will you agonize on behalf of those who've gone out for the sake of his name? Look at chapter 2, please. Second, second aspect of this. Chapter 2, and look beginning in verse 25. Yet I suppose it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, look at these words, but your messenger and he that ministered to my wants or my needs, for he longed after you all and was full of heaviness because that he had heard, ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, 
but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I sent him, therefore, the more carefully that when ye see him again, ye may rejoice, and that I may be less sorrowful. Receive him, therefore, in the Lord with all gladness, and hold such in reputation or high regard. Because for the work of Christ, he was near unto death, not regarding his life, to supply your lack of service toward me. Now notice in verse 25, Epaphroditus is your messenger, and then he says he supplied your, and that lack of service is not, Paul's not making an insult to them because in chapter four, he's gonna talk about how abundantly he's been supplied. It's really, it's like an older way of saying there was a deficiency and you met that deficiency. So here's the second way in which it worked, not just praying, but actually participating in the work of the missionary. Right, and I tried to emphasize this because here's the church at Philippi is over here, right? Macedonia, Chi, Paul's in Rome. Epaphroditus is a member of the church at Philippi. He is your messenger. They actually knew Paul was in prison and Paul had needs that had to be met. That is, he supplied my wants, my needs. So this church at Philippi said, hey, we need to do something to help Paul out. We need someone from our assembly to go and help Paul, serve with Paul, serve Paul, help him in the work. Right? That's, that's how the local church stays partnered with those who've gone out for the sake of the name of Christ. It's not just like we have a send-off service, hey, see you in four years. That actually we're actively attentive to and engaged in their work wherever we might have opportunity to do that. Here was one of their members going and being a part of the work to encourage Paul, to refresh him, to help him, to meet some of his needs and serve with him. And this is the kind of thing that every one of us should have a heart to see where might God might want to use us in that. How could God use your abilities and your resources to, to come along in short-term ways to minister to people on the field? I mean, I can, I can tell you all kinds of stories about the way it helps. Right? Couples who retire and have saved up so that they can travel at their own expense to go spend a month with a missionary family to help them. Because that missionary family is raising their kids without grandparents present, without people just to help and bless and sit down at night and talk and play games with them. It doesn't mean you have to show up and you're some great evangelist or you're some super handy person the refreshment of their spirit because you're there to listen and talk, right? Because most of us can't understand what it's like to raise your little children in a completely different culture without any feedback being given to you about how it's going. And along come some people who want to say, hey, how can we help you? What can we do? Right? Or... You might have IT skills and you pop on a plane and go over and help them set up their stuff, bring supplies, work it out with them. Or you might be financially able to, uh, knowledge-wise, to help them work through some things as they try to set up ministries and they need someone who has that ability and that resource, that capability. I mean, there's a, there's, it's almost unlimited the ways you could serve them as long as you're not thinking, you're just on some kind of religious vacation so you can feel good about yourself going somewhere. That you actually grab the towel like Jesus says to do and go just be a help to them. Make it your ambition to be partners with them. Some of you, right, I probably won't be like your first couple years out of school, but some of you are going to have your own businesses. And you're going to have the bandwidth to come alongside of somebody who's taken the gospel into a restricted access nation and you could coach them. 
Help them be able to have a business platform so that they can be there among those, those people who've not heard the name of Christ. Because you've been taught here how to do that. You understand something they didn't. I mean, I, I'm Bible major, Greek minor, MDiv, THM, DMIN. I couldn't start a business if my life depended on it, unless it was pushing a lawnmower or something. I can do physical labor. But the concepts of it, but some of you are being taught exactly how to do it. Some of you, you, some of you have degrees that could get you into places where a guy with my education can't get in. And you could come alongside and be the Timothy and Silas for the Paul who's preaching the gospel. You could take that degree that you have and you could go inside of a country and learn the language and serve as a translator for those who are writing gospel materials. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you can go as a part of your local assembly to take in the task and be a blessing in that way. That's what Epaphroditus did. Look at chapter 4, third dimension. Look at verses 15 to 20. And you probably knew I was going to get there. right? Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated. Let me just stop right here. That word translated communicated is the same one in chapter 1, verse 5 that says fellowship. Same word, family. It's you, you fellowshiped with me in the matter of giving and receiving. You shared you participated with me as concerning giving and receiving, but ye only. For even in Thessalonica, ye sent once and again unto my necessity, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all and abound. I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which you sent for, from you, an odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God, but my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now unto God and our Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's the, the third component. It's prayer and participation and then provision. Or if you like eyes, because I can alliterate either way, right? Intercession, involvement, and investment. They, they, the reality of this, notice when it started, he says, from the beginning, right, from the beginning of the gospel. What does he mean by that? He doesn't mean Acts 2. He's saying from the first day, what he said in chapter 1. The first day the gospel was preached there, here's what you started to do right away. Right? So it was something that commenced with their reception of the gospel, and it was all the way up to Rome. Remember I said that? Acts 16, all the way up until he's in that Roman prison, this church had been committed to this. They had been a part of this. They were engaged in it. They received the gospel. They became responsible for supporting the gospel. And the gospel had changed them in such a way that they were released from the material strangle of this world. Right? I mean, think about it. If you've really believed the gospel, then you've believed that there's something more than this world. And, and you don't live your life desperately trying to grasp everything you can. You actually have come to believe that you can lay up treasure in heaven where it will never decay and it can never be stolen. That God has promised that to you. And, and you believe the gospel so you no longer are a grabber like Ephesians said. Let him who stole steal no more. But rather let him work with his hands so that he may have to give to him that has need. You go from a grabber to a giver when you've actually understood the gospel. And that's what happened to them. And you know what's really amazing about it? This same church, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, was a church that was in poverty. This was not a rich church. 
This was a church that's described as deep poverty, but they were abundant in generosity because they had really gotten the gospel. That everything in this world is passing away, but there is a way in which we can take what God's given to us and we can have it last forever. We can lay up treasure in heaven. And they understood that. They got that. And they shared with him. Here's the partnership. It can sound like a weird partnership, but if you've ever been on the receiving end, you understand this. Look at the end of verse 15. No one partnered with me as concerning giving and receiving. So what was the partnership? From the Macedonian, the, the Philippians, it was giving. You know what Paul's part of the partnership was? Receiving. They were participating in Paul's work by giving and receiving. And notice the consistency. Look at verse 16. For even in Thessalonica, you sent once and again unto my need. Now here's you got to think about it. Because you know, you know your book of Acts, right? I already quoted Paul. Paul was in Philippi. He got beaten, put in jail. Earthquake happens. He gets sent away. He goes to Thessalonica. He says at Thessalonica that he came there having been beaten and shamefully treated. And he preached the gospel with boldness. Now here's what we know from the book of Acts. That Paul preached the gospel in the synagogue at Thessalonica for three Sabbath days. Right, So that means it could have been as short as 15 days. Sabbath day one, Sabbath day two would be day eight, third Sabbath day, day 15. Right Now, most think he spent more time than that there because he probably got to the city and, and then when everything started to break, another riot, and he left the city. But even if you spread that out, it, let's say you spread it out to three months. Paul says this church at Philippi sent more than one gift to him. Okay, they didn't Venmo it. Somebody had a walk from Philippi to Thessalonica. And they did it more than once to meet his needs. And why would they do that? Because Paul had a policy that when he went to a new city he wouldn't receive money from the people to whom he's preaching. He tells us that in 1 Corinthians 9 because he didn't want them to think that the gospel was for sale. So, so he would preach the gospel and he would do it without charge so that they understood the gospel was gracious, right? This is a gift from God. He wouldn't go, hey, let me tell you a message. Give me money. He wouldn't take it. The Philippians knew that. So they sent money so Paul could keep preaching the gospel. They wanted to see the Thessalonians come to Christ. And they knew they could liberate Paul to preach by making sure he didn't have to take money from the Gentiles. That's what 3 John would describe it. So they got it. They understood it right away. First day, Thessalonica. Let's get money over to Paul. Paul, Paul's in prison. Let's send Epaphroditus to meet his needs. They were all in with the resources that they had, and they weren't very much. They're described as poor. I mean, poor. But they got the gospel. And again, how many times do we go, well, if I just had more. If I just... Dr. McAllister quoted a text that I think is a life-changing text, if you think about it the other day, right? That, that God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you have a sufficiency for your needs and an abundance for good deeds. That is, God's going to give you enough to take care of your needs, and he's going to give you some more to use for him. But here's, here's what I would suggest to you. When we go, well, I need all of this, God, and we don't pass it along, we actually clog the flow. Because the very next verse says, he who supplies seed for the sower will supply seed for you for a harvest of righteousness. Do you know why sometimes American churches don't have money 
to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth? It's because we're spending it all on ourselves. We've, we've turned off the valve. We're supposed to be a conduit and we've closed off the valve so that we can hold on to it to ourselves. And God says, that's not why I gave it to you. I gave it to you to have a harvest of righteousness. I gave it to you to spread. And I, I'm just going to be real honest. This, I'm not doing like the Joel Osteen, TJ, you know, I'm not doing prosperity stuff. Here I'm simply saying to you, you need to sink your teeth into that text because in the course of your life, God is going to put a lot of resources in your hands. And he's put in there so that you can use them for the mission of Jesus Christ. First Corinthians 26 says you can enjoy for the glory of God, but then you're supposed to be generous to share. God wants to fund the work of the gospel through what he's given to us. And here's, here, so I mentioned the baby boomers. Here's what I'd say is the, the, the terrible disaster of my generation is that we have had an enormous consumer consumption mindset. Give me more. We were in the 70s. We were called the me generation. Give me more. Give me more. The prosperity of our parents made us hooked on prosperity. And it hasn't gotten any better. Right? And, and what's, what might be plaguing the work of Jesus Christ right now is that the people who stood, who are trying to take the gospel to the nations, some of them are going to have to troop around this country for three years, four years, to get the money to go. And I'm just taking random shots, okay? I'm not a coffee drinker, so it's easy for me to take a shot at this one, right? But we'll drop five bucks on a coffee like that. We'll run out to do whatever. We'll blow through so much discretionary income that it's stunning. And we'll do it so fast that we're racking up debt Right? Some of us need plastic surgery. Like take out your credit card and cut it in half. Because we're spend, 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 spend. And then someone says, I need help getting to the nations who've not heard. And we go, oh, I wish I could do that. Boy, that was a great message. How many pizzas do we need tonight? Because we're consuming rather than being a conduit. And the Philippians were a conduit, and God cared for them. So here's, I'm, I'm appealing to you. I'm just, I'm just honestly appealing to you. The work of Jesus Christ is ours. It's not the missionaries. It's ours. They're going out for us. We have the task. We are to be their partners. Everyone in this room that knows Jesus is actually, is actually accountable for the Great Commission. The question is not, will you or won't you? It is, how well will you? Right? We have the job. Will we fulfill it in a manner that's worthy of Jesus Christ? Will we pray like it really matters? Will we find ways to leverage our abilities and opportunities to help see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? Will we make certain that when we get to the end of our lives, we won't have squandered all that God gave us for things that are going to be left behind. They're just, they're just not going with you. 
Why not send it on ahead and one day be able to join up alongside of some person who heard the gospel because you, you did a little less than you could have. Right? You, you, didn't, you didn't make full use of this world because it's passing away. I'm not calling you to a monastery. I'm calling you to see that the mission of Jesus Christ is the most important thing on this planet. The sun did not come up today for us to pursue our dreams. It came up because Jesus isn't done building his church. When he's done, we'll know it. And as long as he gives us life and breath, he wants us to be about the thing that matters to him, that he died for, that he gave us life and the spirit and every opportunity in front of us. Will you, will you buy in? Will you commit yourself to the cause of Christ so that 41 years from now, when you're the old person looking out at a group full of young people, you can say, it was worth it. It was worth it. Because I can say that. I think anybody in here that was in school with me who's poured their life into serving Christ and wanting to see people here that have never heard, there's no joy like that. Right? There's no joy like knowing there are people who heard the gospel who never had a chance to hear it because our church took Jesus seriously. Will you do it? Will you rise up to the call? Embrace the task. Make this the generation that doesn't squander all the riches that God's given us, that doesn't squander the opportunity that doesn't glide through life, but lives like there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is a Jesus, and he is the savior of the world. Let's go get him. Let's do it. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these young people. I thank you for the way that you've brought them to this place. I thank you for just the incredible opportunity that's represented by this group of people. Only eternity will reveal what can be done and has been done because someone tonight says, I'll step up. By God's grace, I will live my life for the mission of Jesus Christ. I may not be a goer, but by God's grace, I will be a sender that is faithful. Oh God, please do it. Raise up a generation that has a zeal for Christ, that wants to see the gospel get to the hardest places on the earth, wants to see our churches remain fervent and zealous for the gospel. Shake away the apathy. Set our hearts on fire, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.